This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report podcast with me, Norman Swan. Today, what the devastated mink farms of the Netherlands tell us about the COVID-19 virus, how to save the thousands of Australian lives lost each year to mistakes in diagnosis, why an Alzheimer's gene might be good for you, and where the hammer toe fits in. Plus, our regular segment with health reporter Tegan Taylor on what stories Tegan has been delving into since we last spoke. And a reminder that we want your questions and comments to healthreport at abc.net.au, which we'll try to answer. So when it comes to predicting health risk, what's more important, what you eat and what you weigh? You've been looking into this, Tegan, haven't you? Yeah, I sure have. And well, I have been looking into someone else who's been looking into it in much more detail than me. Um, Some Uh, researchers in Sweden studied 79,000 people over 20 years and looked at basically their BMI, so their body mass index, and their dietary quality, which they pretty much looked at how closely their diets fit to a Mediterranean-style diet. So lots of fruit and vegetables, legumes, nuts, high-fibre grains that, you know, you Mm. know, the Mediterranean diet. Yep, not much red meat. That's exactly right, fish and all that sort of thing. And they basically found that... um, Overweight people who followed the Mediterranean diet had the lowest risk of dying from any cause and obese people who followed the diet did not have a significantly higher risk of dying. But people with who fit into the normal weight category but didn't um, follow the Mediterranean-style diet very closely had a, quite a high risk of death. So it really turns on its head this idea that you can, you know, that being lean offsets perhaps having a poor diet. Um, you can't necessarily look at someone and know what their health is. So this fits in with other research, um, and you've been talking to a nutritionist about this. Yeah, that's right. And also the lead author from the study who was really surprised that, well, not that surprised, obviously he was studying it, but he said he assumed that some sort of compensation for being bigger was likely to do with the diet, but really was quite surprised to see the degree of compensation and um, that this Mediterranean diet seems to be quite protective. And so, yes, one of the people I spoke to was an Australian dietitian, Fiona Willer, and she's done a lot of research into how health behaviours are actually a lot more relevant to your sort of health outcomes than just your weight. And she says that this study really reinforces the fact that BMI is quite a blunt instrument Mm. when we're trying to predict someone's health. I think we really need to take our focus off BMI as some kind of ring to rule them all because it's really bad at any of those jobs that it tries to do. At best, it's a population proxy measure. It's really not great at a population level and it's really damaging at an individual level when somebody goes to a health provider and they're judged on the size of their body rather than being asked about what these health behaviours actually are in their reality. That was Fiona Willer. Now, I mean, that's right. I mean, BMI, if you're muscular, BMI, your BMI is artificially high. I mean, it's your waist circumference that really counts. But let's let's go back to this uh, diet business. Did they, did they speculate in the research? I mean, I've got my own ideas here, but did they speculate in research what it was about the Mediterranean diet that really uh, made yeah. the difference? So they didn't really speculate in the research, but when I asked the author about this, he said that's probably to do with lowered inflammation and oxidative stress with the Mediterranean diet. And I was really curious to know whether other... The Mediterranean diet seems to be studied so much and there obviously is some sort of relationship, some protective relationship there. But I wondered whether other traditional diets had a similar thing. But I know that you've actually done quite a lot of work on this before, Norman, and I want to ask you, because no one's given me a straight answer, what is it about the Mediterranean diet that 
does seem to be so protective. Well, a casual look at the map of the Mediterranean would tell you that there's, there's no such thing as the Mediterranean diet <laughs> because the diet in Morocco uh, is different from the diet in Egypt. I mean, there, there are similarities, of course, from Israel to Turkey to Greece to the south of France to Italy. So the diets are, are different. There are elements that are the same. And when people say that you're keeping to the Mediterranean diet, you uh, the, what they're talking about is about nine different elements. How, how much vegetables are you eating? How little red meat? How much white meat? How much you're getting from legumes, as you said. But the real secret sauce here with the Mediterranean diet, so the original de description about the Mediterranean diet was actually the Cretan diet. It was the diet in Crete, where the carbohydrate was complex, tended to be sourdough bread, um, a lot of olive oil was consumed, and so on. But really... So not very much processing, really. Not much processing, but, well, actually, a lot of processing. Because <laughs> what we're talking about here is a dietary pattern. And, the dietary, and it's the dietary pattern. It's basically a lifestyle pattern that counts here. So who do you think are the second longest lived people in the world? Oh, I would have thought aren't the Japanese the longest lived. Who's, they are. Mm, the Bhutan? second longest lived are Greek Australians. Wow. First, what? First generation Greek Australians. Oh, wow. Believe it or not. And just like your story with Sweden, they have diabetes, they're overweight, they've got coronary heart disease. I, I, it's called, well, I'm calling it the Greek, the Greek paradox. You heard of the French paradox? This is the Greek paradox. Um, a lot of this work's been done by Catherine Etiopoulos in Melbourne. And this is a lifestyle thing. So, the, the, as, so when these people arrived from Greece, they migrated, they actually had an unhealthier diet than people left behind in Greece. They, they, started, they loved Australian barbecues and they did that. But as they've got older, they've returned to the Greek pattern of living. And the Greek pattern of living is you've got your backyard vegetable patch, so you're eating fresh vegetables, fresh herbs, and it's about cuisine. So cooking is important. So everybody that's on a raw diet, you're missing out because how you cook your food is really important because, as any chef knows, cooking is chemistry. And the chemistry here is extra virgin olive oil, lots of onions, lots of garlic, lots of other alien uh, vegetables, um, a lot of red vegetables. Work done at Deakin University and Sydney University has shown that if you cook red vegetables in olive oil, they, uh, the antioxidants, the lycopenes are much more absorbable. So Research and, done by me suggests they're also highly delicious in that form. Are, yeah, and sofrito, which is basically a tomato mix where you, fr you, fr you lightly fry your onions, your garlic and other vegetables along with tomatoes. So chopped cooked tomatoes give you more antioxidants than raw tomatoes. So these older Greek Australians have their own backyard patch. They're eating fresh vegetables and fresh herbs, all of which get involved in the chemistry of the of cooking. They cook slowly, so you're not getting uh, a lot of brown stuff on food. And there are other, there's other secret stuff as well, but you're going to have to wait for you know other things for me to tell you what the other <laughs> secret sauce is. But that's basically it. It's a lifestyle thing with a dietary pattern. It's quite literally a secret sauce. And I thought I was on here to tell you about stuff, Norman, but you're just making my head explode here. This is amazing. Yeah, and hopefully your mouth water. Now, <laughs> we've got a question for later. What's the, what's the question? That's right. I'm going to put to you some tough questions about whether tattooing has any health risks. And we want to know more of your questions and feedback. So send them to our new sexy streamlined email account, which is healthreport at abc.net.au.
Thanks, Tegan. Speak to you later. And that's what you're listening to, RN's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Each year in Australia, mistakes in diagnosis account for an estimated 21,000 people being harmed, up to 4,000 deaths and many malpractice claims. That's according to a paper in this morning's Medical Journal of Australia. Diagnosis is at the heart of an, account, of an encounter with your doctor. Depending on the label given to your problem, a diagnosis can lead to medication, surgery or no action at all. Missing a diagnosis, getting it wrong or making it late can be anything from a mild inconvenience to a disaster. A new group of health professionals has come together to improve diagnostic accuracy in Australia. One of the founders is Professor Ian Scott of the University of Queensland. Welcome back to The Health Report, Ian. Thanks very much, Norman. What are the causes of diagnostic error? Um, There's two basic uh, categories, I guess. Cognitive error, where the decision-making of the individual doctor is uh, is most uh, at fault. But there's also system errors, where there may be, for example, miscommunication of a laboratory result or something just goes missing in terms of a feedback loop and uh, or the actual environment in which the doctor is working. Um, the technology with which he's uh, working uh, just causes errors because the technology doesn't work very well. But we'd have to say that in the majority of errors, there's always a cognitive component, and many of the errors really rely on the individual clinician making a decision. So it's not about knowledge, it's about bias. That's right. I mean, I think that knowledge does play a, does play a role. There's no doubt about that. Uh, the more experienced uh, clinician who's uh, developed very well-structured knowledge over a period of time from experience, um, you know, he can, he, he's probably less likely to cause an error than someone who's novice and has yet to learn many things. But... In relation to practicing clinicians who've been out in the field now for some years, well past graduation, knowledge per se doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be a good diagnostician. It's not because clinicians aren't aware of diagnoses, aren't aware of a condition. It's just that uh, the diagnosis isn't thought of in the appropriate circumstance. And you talk about there's various kinds of bias. Do you just want to run through them? Because they actually affect us all in our daily lives, not just in medicine. But just give us a sense of what it is. I mean, one is called premature closure, which is really coming yep. to a conclusion too quickly. That's right. That's right. See, a lot of our reasoning is intuitive. It's rapid. It's fast. And, you know, it's efficient. And in many cases, it, it's right. It, it gets us by most of the time. But we need to realize that sometimes it can set us up to fail. And the premature closure in diagnosis is a particularly important one where sometimes people focus too quickly on a couple of facts or a set of facts start getting a diagnostic impression, then stick with it, and then don't think about, well, what are the other possibilities and what information do I still need to gather that might refute what I'm already thinking about. And related to that is called anchoring bias, where you stick with it even though you get contradictory information coming in from the diagnostic test, for example. That's correct. That's right. So you sort of rationalise it away. You think, well, it could be just a variant of what I'm thinking about, or perhaps this is not an important finding, or perhaps the, the patient's overplaying it. De- and as a result, then the clinician de-emphasizes its importance. And with that is confirmation bias, where clinicians can actually go looking for information that supports their diagnosis. And the way they question the patient and the way they frame the questions then just uh, reinforces a, a preconceived notion. Rather than trying to disprove it in, the scient- in, in terms of the scientific method. And then there's availability right. bias. What's that? Availability bias is where a diagnosis is readily available to you. It comes instantly out of memory, often because you've had a similar case very recently, particularly if it's a vivid case or a rather rare esoteric case, uh, something that really sort of sticks in your mind, so to speak. Uh, So you kind of think of that first up, but then perhaps don't think, well, actually, this is a somewhat rare diagnosis. It doesn't happen that often. That's why I should think about the more common occurrences first before I go to the rare case second. And then there's something called framing bias, which 
you know, it, it is essentially, well, well, just tell me what you think framing bias is about. Well, it's often the way that patients may be given a diagnostic label by someone else and then that just propagates through. The way the information around this patient is presented to you may already frame the problem in such a way that you accept that preconceived diagnosis or that you see it in a certain way versus the, perhaps another way that you should see it. I mean, the example we give is, you know, is a patient who may have a mental health problem long-standing now presents with some new symptoms Everyone starts to frame it as this is probably a psychosomatic manifestation or maybe just a complication of their previous mental health problem rather than thinking quite independently and say, let's just put that mental health history to one side and look at these facts bare as a new problem entirely. And is, in that way, then you start thinking about other possibilities. Are female doctors better at this than male doctors? I mean, in surgery, there's, the evidence suggests that female surgeons are better than, uh, than male surgeons. Yeah, interesting. I don't know the answer to that. I suspect that they are. There are some interesting studies that would suggest that in-hospital mortality is less for, for patients treated under, under female doctors than under male doctors. When you account for everything else, now mind you, they're observational studies and there could be confounders there. So I don't think you want to overplay it. But I guess in the sense that um, uh, women often tend to be less snappy decision makers, they think a little more deeply about some things, they certainly perhaps are less prone to framing errors, Um, I I guess that is certainly possible, but I can't say there's definitive research about that. So some people say the way to get over this is to stop being human and let a computer diagnose you because the computer doesn't Mm. have these cognitive biases. Well, yes, that's true, and there's a lot of focus at the moment on computer-assisted diagnosis and machine learning. And I think in some situations, the evidence now is becoming fairly strong that perhaps machine learning in particular may actually be better diagnosticians in relation to imaging data. So if you're interpreting ECGs, or you're looking at chest X-ray, you're looking at CAT scan, I think the algorithm, the machine learning algorithm, may actually do better than clinicians. Uh, Because you're right, it's not prone to bias. But I think there's a limitation around machine learning because it too can be biased depending on the data that feeds into the algorithm in the first place. And that's what we're learning more about now that machine learning can actually fail and can sometimes can fail quite spectacularly. So I think, again, we just need to be careful not to be carried away with computer-assisted diagnosis just yet. Now, it's often said that doctors bury their mistakes and don't ever discover them. What's the way to solve this problem? I think there's a couple of things. I think, first of all, we need to get a feedback loop. So in other words, we should be able to follow patients over time, particularly when they perhaps leave our care and go back to general practitioners or go to another specialist. In other words, we, as a community of practitioners, need to have feedback loops that we are open to be told, look, I've seen your patient down the track and I think the diagnosis that you gave them was wrong for these reasons. So I think feedback, and that's perhaps now better because we have electronic medical records, we have linked up data sets, so it's much more easy now to find this information down the track, this longitudinal information. So I think that's the first step, that, that closing the feedback. And I think the other thing is that for patients themselves also um, to, you know, to tell us when they think the diagnosis is wrong. It doesn't resonate with them at all, doesn't explain their symptoms or signs, uh, but not putting too much on the Dr. Google searches either. But at least we should cross-check with our patients to see, does this sound right to you? And here's what I'm thinking. And then the third thing is seeking a second opinion. In other words, we should be open to our to bouncing cases off our colleagues and say, I'm not entirely sure what to do here. What do you think about this case? Uh, because research shows that that can certainly uh, lower diagnostic error rates if we engage in that sort of practice. So there's a number of things we can do. Including the cognitive biopsy, but that's like the autopsy, I should say, and we'll, we'll leave that for another time. Ian, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Norman. Ian Scott is Professor of Internal Medicine and Clinical Epidemiology at Princess Alexandra Hospital in Brisbane. 
While there are very few genes which could be specifically called Alzheimer's genes, there is one in particular which is known to increase your risk. It's a variation of a gene called the ApoE, and it's a family of genes, and this particular variant is called ApoE4, and it increases the chances of Alzheimer's, high cholesterol, and heart disease. This is highly relevant as we enter an era of widespread personalised gene testing, where the ApoE group of genes are amongst those reported on, and where preventive action might be possible. But according to a study by South Australian researchers, the ApoE4 gene may not be all that bad, and another in the family called ApoE2 may not be all good. Professor Eleanor Hibbonen is Director of the Australian Centre for Precision Health at the University of South Australia and is Chair of Nutritional and Genetic Epidemiology. Welcome to the Health Report. Hello, thank you for inviting me. What did you do in this study? So we used an approach called Pheno-Wide Association Study to look at the health associations for the APOE gene across the spectrum of uh, human diseases. So um, in this study, we used information from over 300,000 participants, and uh, we looked across um, uh, nearly 1,000 different uh, disease, uh, disease outcomes. And like you said, what we uh, found is that we very much confirmed the uh, harmful effects of the ApoE4 allele, so that those who were homozygous, they had uh, over 15-fold risk of Alzheimer's disease compared to those who were... And I, and I should just, sorry, sorry to interrupt you there, but I just need to translate the technical jargon. So allele is the, variate, the variant of the gene, and homozygous means you've got a double dose, because there's two, you, you've got two versions of the gene, and if you've got a double dose of the ApoE4, that's where you get this 15 times the greater risk. That's right. Uh, but there were benefits as well from having the ApoE4, which was a bit of a surprise. In fact, what you did here is what Ian Scott was just describing, is that you were not introducing cognitive bias. You were not assuming anything. You were just seeing where the data fell. Exactly. And uh, what we found was that uh, that harmful ApoE4 um, e uh, and even the harmful, um, you know, the homozygous form of that, uh, it was associated with the lower risk of uh, obesity and uh, chronic airway obstruction, as well as lower risk of uh, liver disease and type 2 diabetes. And we'll come back to the why in a minute, but let's get to the E version, the E2 version, the ApoE2, because you found that was not not a very friendly one um, at all. Yes, so um, uh, we did uh, with uh, with that variant. We confirmed that, uh, as uh, as was expected, that it uh, lowered the risk of Alzheimer's disease and uh, also um, hypercholesterolemia. But um, then. Um, those people who had two alleles of this supposedly uh, beneficial allele, they had increased risk of peptic ultra, uh, ulcers and um, um, blood clots, um, as well as uh, aneurysms. So they were quite notable um, uh, increase in disease risk. But one thing what was also interesting... And so, and be- uh, in- before you go on yep. there, that's where the hammer toe comes in, because it also increases your risk of hammer toe. Halix valgus. Yes, that's right. And uh, one thing which was uh, particularly interesting was that um, um, it was uh, also increased the risk of cervical uh, disorders, so um, diseases uh, around the uterus. And um, previous studies have found some effects on uh, recurrent miscarriages, and it, uh, this allele is very very rare, and it, it, it is possible that uh, all these effects actually explain why it is so rare. 
So does this all balance out in the end, that uh, while we get anxious about Alzheimer's and high cholesterol, there are benefits down the track with other things? Is it worth worrying about? Yeah, I, I, I suppose this balances it out to some extent. Um, I think that the um, uh, APOE4 increases in um, Alzheimer's disease, they are, they are very, very strong. But... Um, but in the in, in the in the scale of things, I think um, um, single gene or single variant never tells the whole story about our uh, our genetic uh, vulnerabilities, and we are all uh, complex systems, uh, and with uh, with uh, typically with uh, forces that pull towards uh, increases as well as redu- reductions in uh, different diseases. So let's say you get your genes done and it comes back with APOE4. Is it tractable to ch- change in lifestyle? Um, well, we did an earlier study where we looked at the broader uh, range of Alzheimer's um, uh, risk variants. So there we included uh, 200,000 different variants in this uh, polygenic risk score. And we looked at uh, the interactions between uh, lifestyle factors and, and genetic risk uh, with, uh, with respect to um, uh, dementia risk. And we did find that even if one was car- carrying um, um, a high genetic burden for Alzheimer's uh, disease, it was possible to reduce the risk notably by living a healthy lifestyle. So just uh, doing those common things that we are always told to do, uh, namely keeping alcohol whole consumption in moderation and not smoking and keeping a healthy weight. So that those will help still in the context of um, uh, genetic burden. What a relief. Eleanor, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Eleanor Hubenen is Director of the Australian Centre for Precision Health at the University of South Australia and is Professor of Nutritional and Genetic Epidemiology. The COVID-19 virus almost certainly came from bats jumping from an animal species to us humans. But how much do we know whether it can jump back? Mink farms in the south of the Netherlands may hold some of the answers. With more, here's the Health Report's producer, James Bullen. Well, it looks a little bit like a ferret, a little bit bigger, and they are kept for fur, so people make coats of it. Arjan Stegman is describing a mink to me, an animal which is farmed in his native Netherlands. They eat meat, which means that, well, normally these farms are quite smelly. They're not so noisy. They're usually quite quiet. Only when you approach them, when they have pups, they make a bit more noise. It's mid-April, and the coronavirus pandemic is hitting North Brabant hard. That's the province where many of these mink farms are situated. But it's not just people who are getting sick. Mink are too, and they're dying. What is normal is that it's maybe one per thousand in a couple of days in, in that period, and it, well, it, it kind of doubled. And in addition, there were some respiratory signs. Uh, so they had excreta around their nose, but also some had difficulty breathing in that period of the year. Normal for some animals to have that, but usually it has a bacterial cause, but that appeared negative. This farm was located in the area that was most severely affected by COVID-19. The person handling the, this case also decided to diagnose for SARS-Coronavirus 2 and that test appeared to be positive. So that's actually how it uh, went on, on rolling. And then one day later, also a second farm, uh, which was yeah, maybe 10 kilometers away from this farm, also presented itself with similar problems and also with a similar diagnosis. So a full-blown investigation kicks off to work out how these mink got coronavirus and how far it's spread. Both these farms, they had a history of 
COVID-19, well, the first one was the owner, which had presented itself around uh, the 1st of April. And the second farm, a worker on the farm, had had the infection with the SARS coronavirus too, and he, uh, that, that worker was even hospitalized. Because SARS-CoV-2 mutates slowly over time, you can see how different cases of the virus are related, like a big family tree. Aryan could see that the virus the workers had and the virus the mink had looked very similar. So in that sense, the virus had been introduced by humans, which may not have been unexpected given the severity of the human epidemic in that region. Human-to-mink transmission. But what about mink-to-mink or mink-to-human? The next step for the disease detectives was serosurveys on all of the mink. That's where you look for antibodies that show the animals have already had the virus. That was performed on the 12th of May, a little less than two weeks after the diagnosis. Over 90% of the animals had already antibodies. Actually, the entire farm was infected. And also the virus could be found in all kinds of fomites within the farm, also in the air within the farms. Fomites mean surfaces. And so these mink farms are hotbeds of coronavirus. Once it gets into the mink population, it spreads super fast. But that's not all. Taking another look at that virus family tree... You can also follow the path of the virus, so see where it originates from and see where it goes in the next step. And from that, we could also identify on the first and on the third farm that humans in the farms were infected from the mink and... For example, on the third farm, two weeks after the mink presented their problems, one of the owners got sick. Two days later, two of her family members, they were also tested for COVID-19. The virus was detected and that virus was similar to the virus of the mink, which is kind of a clear demonstration that animal-to-human infection is actually possible here. Now they've learnt the virus can go from human to mink and back again. Everybody working on these farms is isolated. And the mink... A cold. We got afraid that we might have continued spread of the virus on the infected mink farms, uh, yeah, maybe until November. And so at that time, it was decided to cull the infected mink farms by the end of May. But that hasn't eliminated the virus. So despite this culling, it was, yeah, we have been unable to stop the spread among the mink farms uh, in, in that area. And we're still in the dark to what's the reason. They think maybe it's a worker who wasn't traced, moving between farms. Or there's the possibility another animal caught the virus from the mink and is spreading it. With the virus persisting in mink, how worried should we be about animals with coronavirus? There are a lot of animals that have been shown to be infected, either in experiments where the animals have been inoculated with the virus or real-world cases. Joanne Santini is Professor of Microbiology at University College London. So I think it's real-world cases that are particularly worrying. So you've probably seen the cases of the tigers and the lions, big cats in the zoo in the US, and then subsequent to that, lots of domestic cats across the world being infected with the virus naturally, so this is not in the lab. Very obvious in the case of the mink that animals can serve as a reservoir for the reinfection of humans. So even though you might say, okay, we've we've got rid of, you know, SARS-CoV-2 from the human population, if there is a reservoir like mink, once it, it moves into the animal that's infected, it could change to, to be better at infecting those animals. It could develop disease, even though some of these animals aren't showing symptoms of disease yet, or it could just remain 
dormant and then potentially be a risk to humans. In the Netherlands, they're not taking any chances. The mink farming industry was meant to end in 2024 for animal welfare reasons. But the Dutch government are bringing that forward to March next year. In the meantime, they'll continue surveillance of mink and other animal populations. I still think that the driving force of the pandemic now is is human-to-human transmission, so that the animals play an insignificant role at this point. But still, we need to understand their contribution to the system to take actions should they be needed and not uh, confront ourselves with a situation in the end that we do not understand. Fascinating. Ariane Stegman is a veterinary epidemiologist at Utrecht University and he ended that piece from the Health Report's producer, James Bullen. And Tegan Taylor is back with your questions and comments. Hi, Tegan. Hi, yep, ready to sling you some questions, Norman, and see if you've got answers for them. Yeah, okay, the biggest test ever. And um, (laughs) so what was that one that you said at the beginning of the program, the the one about tattoos? Tattooing, yes, yes, interesting. So this person, um, Helen, has saying is sort of making a comment that there's an avalanche of tattooing taking place in Australian society. And Helen's wondering, do we know what the health risks are of tattooing and whether there's likely to be medical issues that arise um, following tattooing? Apparently Helen's GP has indicated that it might even contribute to Alzheimer's disease. I just think that's a, a long bow. These sorts of things which are quite common in the community and become and have been for a long time, it's very hard to ascribe cause and effect because you've got you know, who, who gets a tattoo in the past. It tends to have been people who are more working class in certain occupations um, like the Navy and what have you. Now it's much broader group demographically in the community, young kids of all social classes and education are getting tattoos. So it's really hard to say that there would be any long-standing effects, much as many parents around Australia would <laughs> love there to be. I think that um, it's unlikely. It tends to be walled off. It tends to be stuck under the skin there in a very permanent way. And I think that permanency is part of the safety, if you like, of of tattooing. I mean, the, the risk in tattooing is actually in the tattooing process itself. It's invasive. It can cause infections, bacterial infections. And it can also cause you know, bloodborne infections if they're not using clean equipment. Well, surely there's never been a safer time to get a tattoo than in contemporary society. Like we're not on ships doing it with bits of, I don't know what ancient sailors used to make uh, their tattoos. Uh, but Well, you've got high throughput uh, tattoo parlours, which are less so in COVID-19 times. I thought that's where you were going to go but with, with that one. But the, um, the, with high throughput uh, tattoo parlours, there's, there's also a risk unless they're very, very careful. But I think most tattoo parlours these days are uh, reliable. They do it carefully and, you know, they're wearing gloves and they change their their, their um, injector heads a lot. I don't know what they call them in tattooing, but whatever they do, they dab your skin with ink, they change them. So you're not using, they're not crossing over between people. Mm. A diff- very different uh, question from Jeanette. Jeanette has ovarian cancer. She's had surgery, radiation and chemo treatments and her bone marrow is now struggling to produce the blood cells she requires. It sounds like it's pretty bad for her. She's just wanting to know, has there been anything on immunotherapy for ovarian cancer? Well, they're trying immunotherapies as they are. So these are drugs which effectively free up the immune response to attack the cancer. 
and they come in various forms and in slightly different mechanisms such that you can actually use them together. Uh, the pattern with these drugs is that for some cancers like melanoma, they, be, they can have quite a dramatic effect, um, but that tends to wear off with time. People are experimenting with combination therapy, and they're certainly experimenting with these drugs with ovarian cancer. And the good news with ovarian cancer is that with certain types of ovarian cancer, the prognosis is getting much better. It's not a great cancer to have, one must say, but the, the treatment is getting much better, such that there's probably less reliance on radical surgery than there used to be. And some feedback for you, Norman. Julie's written in in response to, we were talking, I think, last week, and you said the first clinical trial was on bloodletting. And she says, no, Norman. In 1747, James Lind, a Scottish naval surgeon, did a clinical trial for scurvy. Showing that limes and other vegetables, which which uh, had we well, didn't know about vitamin vitamin C, but he knew that the pattern of diet was different. And I, I was surprised that that was I actually didn't look it up for this program today. But I I was I thought it was an observational study that he observed that certain ships did not get scurvy while others did, and so that he tried out this. I didn't realise it was actually a randomised trial, but I stand corrected. Thank you one for my, the feedback. One of my favourite factoids about scurvy, and this is not in human um, studies, but in the studies that they did in guinea pigs, it was a fluke, really, that guinea pigs are one of the few animals that can actually get scurvy along with humans, and I think... I want to say aardvarks or armadillos. Now I wish I'd looked that up. But if they tested it in another rodent, the connection might not have actually been apparent. Well, same story with penicillin. Penicillin wow. uh, would not have worked on certain animal species that are normally done in preclinical trials. And penicillin could well have fallen over uh, rather than going straight to humans from the test tube. Yeah, the serendipity of science. That's right. And one more from Penny, who has been a very uh, loyal listener to the Health Report for many years and has always been interested in widening her medical knowledge, but she has had a personal effect from listening to the show. She listened to the faecal incontinence story that you ran last year and talked to a physiotherapist about it and has really made a difference to her life and her sort of uh, independence over her toileting. So thank you, the Health Report, for this really important stuff that you put out. Great. And we'll thank Dr. Nassim Mirbergeri, who is the uh, colorectal surgeon who was the featured talent on that program. Mm. So thanks very much for all your questions and comments. Keep them coming in. You email them to healthreport at abc.net.au. So see you next time. Tegan. See you then, folks. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.